If you would, turn with me to Mark's Gospel, Mark chapter 9. That hymn that we just sang, My Faith Looks Up to Thee, it was a prayer, a prayer that we uh, offered to the Lord. And so as we go to His Word, let's go to Him once again in prayer, asking Him to help us understand His Word and put it into practice. Let's pray. O Father, Almighty God, we thank You, Father, that You have not left us alone. You have given us Your Word and Spirit to guide and direct us all the way home to that great day ahead when we will no longer have to walk by faith, but instead we can live by sight. Until then, Father, would you continue to direct your people, and we thank you that your word is before us, and we ask now that your Holy Spirit would give us understanding and a growing desire and ability to put your word into practice. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're on week two of our resumption of our series, Jesus According to the Bible and Exposition of the Gospel of Mark. Um, Children, you know that you guys have been learning the first catechism. Uh, Those of us in the youth and adult class are are learning the uh, shorter catechism. Maybe one day we'll do the larger catechism. But uh, Mark is is really um, uh, simple and short. It's Mark's shortest catechism. Three questions and answers that Mark is deliberately from beginning to end, not only uh, asking, but he's providing the answer. And those questions, of course, are who is Jesus? What did Jesus come to do? And how should someone respond to the person and work of Jesus? The other day I was uh, reading an article on the, uh, an online article And uh, the intro comments uh, for someone that was about ready to speak about uh, Jesus in his own words, I'm pretty sure they were going to use the I am statements in John, but uh, the intro comments were this. Until very recently, most people probably had some idea who they thought Jesus is. The Jews regarded him as a traitorous blasphemer. Muslims regarded him as a failed prophet who did not die nor was raised who was succeeded by Muhammad. Liberal Christians regard him as a great teacher who set a marvelous example of care for the poor and self-sacrifice. Health and wealth preachers treat him as a cosmic dispensary of goodies. We might even wonder whether Pokemon-obsessed, distracted, late moderns are even asking much anymore who Jesus is. Do they even care? All the more reason to pay attention to what he said about himself. He did not leave us to guess or wander about in darkness. Indeed, as we continue to open up Mark's gospel, we are learning who Jesus is, what he came to do, and how someone should respond to the person and work of Jesus. Some of you may be familiar with a law of logic, the law of non-contradiction, that states that it is not possible for something to be 
and not to be at the same time. In other words, children, you cannot be both nine years old and ten years old at the same time. You cannot both be here in worship at Grace and Peace and somewhere else. It's not possible. Yet, at the center of our passage is what could be viewed as a major violation of the law of non-contradiction. For in verse 24, we read earlier, I believe, help my unbelief, or put slightly different but still having the same meaning, I believe, and yet I also don't believe. Well, where are we in Mark? We've moved down off the mountain where we were last week, and we're in the valley below. Now, contrary to what I said last week about the lack of works of art that depict the transfiguration, remember I was trying to say, how do you visually capture what's taking place on the mountain? Well, I was wrong. Because in my study this week, I found out that, yes, someone has painted a picture, as it were, of the transfiguration. It's a painting, the last painting done by Raphael, one of the high Renaissance Italian artists. And he died in 1520, right before it was completed. And uh, we believe a student completed it. But there are two scenes in this painting that is in the Vatican Museum in Rome. Two scenes. The upper half is on the mountain, but the lower half is down below in the valley. The two scenes, upper and lower half, are similar. They are both frightening and cosmic, revealing Jesus' authority, showing up the disciples both on the mountain and down below as failures. And yet, even though they're similar, there is great contrast. There's the light and holiness versus the dark and wicked. On the mountain, Jesus had been faced with the spiritual short-sightedness of his disciples. Here in the valley, he was confronted by unbelief. There is pain, weariness, misery, agony, and distress. Not too dissimilar from Moses coming down off of the mountain only to find unbelief and unfaithfulness. Well, let's look at this story before us, in particular the action of the story. Um, Action is, is typical in Mark, but what is not typical is the amount of details. This account in Mark's gospel is much longer than Matthew's in chapter 17 or Luke's in chapter 9. Why does Mark, who is usually very brief and abrupt and fast paced, why does he slow down and give us all these details? Well, I think it's a way of causing us ourselves to slow down, to think, to pay attention. So let's look first at this story of yet another healing, the healing of a boy with an unclean spirit. You saw the scene, or you heard the scene, the crowd, there's scribes, teachers of the law present, there's arguing with the nine disciples that were down below. In our text that we read a few minutes ago, we see the failure of the disciples. 
Earlier they had been sent out to preach and cast out demons, we see in chapter 6. And they had been successful, yet here they fail. And Jesus' disappointment with them is very real. Their failure is not to be viewed as some sort of justifiable inadequacy. In other words, not, ah, we're only human. No, as Jesus will make it clear, it was due to unbelief. Did you hear earlier the description of the young boy? Luke speaks of this only child of the father. Did you hear this evil, destructive, dehumanizing spirit who had prevented him from speaking or hearing and whose aim was to destroy him? This is no ordinary medical condition. Maybe similar to epilepsy, but it's distinguished from a mere physical illness. How long had this young boy been suffering since childhood? And notice in verse 22... The father says, and it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. Fire and water. Symbols and pictures of not just physical death, but judgment. At the end, in verse 29, Jesus says this, This kind, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. This kind of demon possession is thus a picture of everyone's captivity to Satan. This picture, this description, one commentator says this, this description of the boy's misery provides a dramatic contrast between what demons do to people and what Jesus does to them. It also illustrates the fact that the presence of Jesus very often brings conflict before it brings peace. Most of us are still looking for an easy life, a conflict-free life. I know I am. But my friends, as we've said over and over again, there is a war going on. Obedience, disobedience, belief, unbelief. Sin, righteousness. And when Jesus comes onto the scene, the evil spirit recognizes Jesus and things get worse. My friends, if you are sharing Christ with other people, be prepared for things to get worse before they get better. It is no sign of things going in a wrong direction. Jesus disturbs people. He's got to. He's the truth. He's the one road to God. And none of us like to be told what road to take. The boy's condition is utter misery. But notice in contrast the power of Jesus. Jesus says in the midst of his disciples' failure, bring him To me. Jesus speaks in verse 25 and he rebukes the evil spirit. As king and judge, as Mark is revealing Jesus to be, he issues the judgment of guilt and condemnation. He commands the spirit to leave and not return. 
This could be translated in some ways, get out and stay out. Jesus' power versus the condition of the boy and the power of the evil one. Notice the healing. There's language of resurrection. The people thought he was dead. And so Jesus, as it were, took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose. That's language of resurrection, which Jesus has already talked about before. He's going to keep talking about toward Jerusalem, toward the cross. Indeed, when Jesus sent the evil spirit packing, it is so violent a departure that they thought he was dead. All hope is lost. Jesus has made it worse. At least the boy was alive, now he's dead. But Jesus lifted him up and he arose. He arose. Well, running alongside this action in this story are two important conversations. One between Jesus and the boy's father and the other between Jesus and his disciples. Out of these two conversations emerge two important lessons. Lesson number one, Jesus on the nature and necessity of faith. And lesson number two, Jesus on the nature and necessity of prayer. Let's take a look at this first lesson. Jesus on the nature and necessity of faith as he speaks with the Father. Notice in verse 22, the doubt of the Father. But if you can do anything, clearly this man wants healing, but he has his doubts. He has his doubts. Notice the reply of Jesus in verse 23. This expression of doubt on the part of the man draws a sharp reply from Jesus. Jesus basically says, you're asking the wrong question. Jesus turns the tables. He corrects his statement. If you can, my translation's got an exclamation mark. I think you could put both a question mark and an exclamation point there. He challenges his doubt and the weakness of his faith because it's not a matter of ability. It's a matter of willingness. All things are possible for one who believes, Jesus said. Well, what does this mean? Well, this statement, of course, is often misunderstood and abused. This is not some kind of name it and claim it faith. It's not magic. It's not some kind of incantation. Say the right words, do the right thing, and something will happen. I mean, did Job pray? Did Job believe in the midst of suffering? What about David as he watched his son die? What about Paul when he asked three times for the thorn to be removed from his flesh and yet it remained? What about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane asking that if possible, if this cup of bitter wrath that he was going to have to drink, his his own death, if it could be some other way. But not my will, but your will be done, Jesus prays. But yet we see the beginning of faith of the Father. The Father genuinely believes 
I believe, in Jesus for the first time. He sees Jesus, he hears his words. But the man also realizes in a moment of self-discovery that his faith is feeble. It is mixed with doubt and fear, and it may not be strong enough for his son to be healed. But he knows enough by now to turn to Jesus for strength and help to believe. When the boy's father admits that his faith is partial and incomplete, Jesus begins to work. So what's the lesson? Faith is not a feeling of complete certainty. Jesus shows that faith is not primarily the absence of doubts and fears. I was looking earlier this morning for a copy of the July Table Talk because it was doubt and assurance. Doubt and assurance. Well, what is faith? Faith is rather committing to and obeying Jesus despite doubts and fears. Now, some people's teaching, some churches' teaching, teaches people to have faith in faith and not faith in Christ. Because the emphasis has shifted from Christ to the condition of faith as to that which helps you. Think about this the next time you get in the car, either as the driver in the driver's seat or the passenger in the passenger seat. Could you imagine driving by staring at the windshield? You don't stare at the windshield. You look through the windshield. The windshield does not have to be perfect. In fact, probably some of your wipers don't work too well. It doesn't have to be perfect to show you the road. Faith, my friends, does not have to be perfect to grab hold of Jesus. And amazingly, this admission of a lack of faith is the beginning of faith. Indeed, in other areas of life, we cannot expect certainty before we commit. That demand is unreasonable. Think about those of you that have hired someone. Do you know everything in advance? How about those of you that are are hired by someone? Do you know everything in advance about this company? Uh, Think about marrying someone. Think about the time you first jumped off of the diving board. The Father's faith, notice, expresses itself how? In prayer. Its eloquence is obviously not there. There's no power in some kind of eloquence, but rather the power is there in the helplessness, the helplessness that connects someone to Christ, whereas pride and self-sufficiency disconnects someone. So at the center of this story is this conversation between Jesus and the boy's father. Yet the last two verses record a conversation between Jesus and his disciples, and they form an epilogue to the story. And from this conversation comes the second lesson on the nature and necessity of prayer that we see in verses 28 and 29. Notice the disciples' question. They've witnessed the healing They've also earlier witnessed their inability. 
They asked Jesus privately, why could we not cast it out? Now their disappointment was understandable. Hadn't Jesus already given them authority over evil spirits? Authority in which they had already exercised in the past without any kind of trouble that we see in chapter 6? And yet, since then, we've seen the disciples continue to show a kind of know-it-all attitude. The disciples must have tried a prayerless exorcism for the same reason that they couldn't understand why Jesus had to die. They didn't see how weak and sinful they were. They underestimated the power of evil in the world and in themselves. Remember, Peter didn't like the idea that Jesus said he was going to die. Peter did not understand at the time that that's the only thing that, it would, that would solve the human problem of sin and death. Well, Jesus provides an answer to the question of his disciples. In answering their question, he didn't say that it didn't happen because he wasn't there. Remember, he's up on the mountain coming down the mountain. It was rather that they didn't pray. The disciples must have been relying on their own strength or perhaps relying on past achievements. They failed to pray. In other words, they failed to believe. They failed to exercise faith. Well, what's the lesson? Well, the lesson here has got to be the, the lack of prayer on the part of the disciples reveals an absence of faith in Christ and yet a, the presence of faith in yourself. Jesus was telling the disciples that they needed the kind of prayer that the boy's father made. Remember in John 15, Jesus says this, apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, the disciples again are down below in the valley with the crowd. Jesus is on the mountain. He's coming down the mountain. Uh, it's not a matter of the presence of Jesus. It's a matter of prayer and faith in Jesus. They had already confessed Him as Messiah. Who do people say that I am? Who do you say that I am? You are the Christ, Peter says. They've confessed Him as Messiah. They've declared Him to be the Lord. But they had to learn that an active working, a active working um, depending faith in Christ is a daily calling. What does Jesus say in chapter 8, verse 34? If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And else in other places that is also said daily. Daily. Well, with these two lessons, Jesus is continuing to educate and train his disciples. He's showing them here the connection between faith and prayer. Think with me before we conclude about the relationship between prayer and faith. First, prayer is simply the exercise of faith. A failure to pray on the part of the disciples had doomed their effort, and their failure to pray was a failure of faith. Prayer is faith turned toward God. 
faith addressing itself to God, placing the placing of one's trust and confidence in God. Prayer is faith at work. Prayerlessness, on the other hand, is unbelief. Second, as an exercise of faith, prayer is the greatest demonstration of our dependence on Jesus. It's not the clothes we wear. It's not the, um, uh, the uh, things that we can check off our list. What demonstrates faith here is prayer. Because if we don't pray, we're saying that we're depending on something or someone other than Jesus. Spiritual power, the power that we need to live in the valley, comes through desperate dependence. Notice the mountaintop experience is over. They're in the valley where life is really lived. So what is the nature of our prayers? Ask yourself. Ask yourself. Are they honest? Are they helpless? Are they hopeful? Are they specific? Are they passionate? Let's go back to the law of non-contradiction, specifically now the spiritual law of non-contradiction. When the man says, I believe, help my unbelief. When he says, I believe and I don't believe, it's not a violation of the spiritual law of non-contradiction. John Calvin, in commenting on verse 24, says this, quote, speaking of the man, the father, He declares that he believes and yet confesses his unbelief. Although these two things seem inconsistent, there is no one who does not experience the same thing in himself. Nowhere is there perfect faith and therefore it follows that we are partly unbelievers. Do you hear what Calvin is saying? In the life of a growing, dependent faithful disciple of Jesus, a believer, there is going to be a mixture of faith and unbelief. And speaking of the spiritual law of non-contradiction and another non-violation, are the words of Jack Miller that some of you have maybe heard me quote. He said, the Bible can be summed up in two sentences. Cheer up. You're a lot worse than you think you are. And cheer up. You're a lot more loved and accepted than you could ever believe. And yet, my friends, there is a violation of the spiritual law of non-contradiction. Well, what is it? It's this. Someone who claims to believe, someone who claims to trust in Jesus, and who does not pray. The absence of faith in Christ leads to an absence of prayer. An absence of prayer is evidence of no faith. Remember last month in the something to think about quote on August 28th are these words. If you know you are needy and believe that God helps the needy, you will pray. 
Conversely, if we seldom pray, the problem goes much deeper than a lack of organization and follow through. The heart that never talks to God is the heart that trusts in itself and not in the power of God. Prayerlessness is unbelief. Well, when we look at the disciples here, it's pretty easy to cast stones, isn't it? But before we do, let's ask ourselves, do I pray? Do you pray? Did I, in working on this sermon, go before the Lord in desperate dependence, asking Him to show me His truth? Or did I just rest on some kind of education background? What are you trusting in? What are you resting in? And it's prayer that's not eloquent, not well rehearsed. It's prayer of a desperate and needy heart. I believe, help my unbelief. Peter, in talking to Mark, recalled this incident in vivid detail, more detail than the transfiguration. Peter, the one who would deny Jesus when he wept bitterly, was Peter remembering this? But my friends, there is hope. There is encouragement. Look at the disciples. They're getting rebuked by Jesus for not praying. And yet, in Acts chapter 1, verse 14, where do we find the disciples? Devoting themselves to prayer. Devoting themselves to prayer. Faith and prayer. Did you see it? Look with me again. A confession of faith. I believe. And a desperate prayer. Help my unbelief. My friends, this is the cry of the heart of a Christian. I believe. Help my unbelief. Is it the cry of your heart? Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you in your great sovereignty and wisdom for preserving this particular incident in the life and ministry of Jesus for your people. Father, we, we know that in us is both a mixture of faith and unbelief. Father, help us by your enabling grace to cast our eyes upon Jesus to walk by faith and not by sight in following Him, trusting in Your Word, trusting in Your promises. Oh, Father, we thank You for Your kindness and mercy to Your people. And we thank You, Father, that prayer is not a work in which we are somehow made right with You. Rather, it is the response of a heart that has been changed and declared right with You. So, Father, would you take away our fear of prayer and knowing that we can come to you not only as citizens 
of a great king, but as a children coming to our heavenly father who is more willing to hear us than we are often to pray. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.